This is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. The topic that I'd like to talk today is, is not a particularly glamorous one, but it's one that we're seeing more and more of a problem in not only intensive care units, but in hospitalized patients. And that's the problem of Clostridium difficile colitis or C. diff colitis. We are well aware of the problem with MRSA as a resistant organism in our hospitals and our intensive care units. And C. diff colitis is rapidly approaching a, a problem of the magnitude of MRSA. The organism that causes Clostridium difficile um, is um, produces toxins, which are labeled as toxin A and toxin B, into the lumen of the colon, and it's this toxin-mediated uh, uh, production that results in a pretty severe diarrheal disease, which is um, often debilitating the patient and, in some cases, can be uh, lethal. As like anything else nowadays, the names are constantly changing. You may hear this referred to as C. difficile-associated diarrhea or C. difficile-associated disease, but what the um, more acceptable or politically correct uh, answer nowadays is to call it C. difficile colitis, or CDC. Dialing colleagues uh, reported in the journal of the American Medical Association in 2005. They suggested that nearly all patients received antibiotics before infection with a, a C. difficile colitis, and subsequently it's been shown that chemotherapy and the use of drugs that inhibit the gastric acidity strongly increases the risk of C. difficile colitis. Let me reread that for you in case you didn't catch that because this came up recently on our rounds in our burn unit. Drugs that inhibit gastric acidity strongly increase the risk of C. difficile colitis. Now, you can try to marry this back to, well, I give a patients a lot of medications that reduce their gastric acidity because I do stress ulcer prophylaxis on everyone. Well, keep in mind, a stress ulcer prophylaxis isn't indicated on everyone, and there clearly is an indication, particularly regarding the use of proton pump inhibitors uh, associated with the development of C. difficile colitis. According to Morbidity Mortality Weekly report back in 2005, we are seeing an increasing number of community-acquired cases of C. difficile colitis, and this would kind of go hand-in-hand in what we're seeing in regards to MRSA infections, that though these are two infections that people typically the um, uh, naive would think are purely nosocomial-based, but there is a rise of this type of uh, C. difficile colitis in the community. And Delaney and colleagues uh, reported uh, in uh, 2007 and Dial reported in 2006 that many of these patients who are getting a community-acquired cases of C. difficile colitis have not, have not received antibiotics in the preceding 90 days uh, to the diagnosis. In regards to what we typically think of a C. difficile colitis when we think of our patients who have it are those patients who are hospitalized. They have received some form of antibiotic therapy prior to the development of this. We think this is a reasonably uh, easy condition to recognize. A patient's been on antibiotic for a week, perhaps a few days. They develop some abdominal discomfort, some diarrhea, which they could have several loose bowel movements in a day. And again, this is a progressive problem over a couple of days. About half the patients will have uh, fever in the first few days. But what's interesting is the fever may actually uh, decrease or abate by the time the diagnosis is considered. One sends off a stool sample, and the diagnosis for the C. difficile toxin comes back positive. Wanahita reported in the Clinical Infectious Disease in 2002 that about 40% of patients uh, who are hospitalized with C. difficile colitis will have a leukocytosis with a white blood cell count exceeding 12,500. 
and often these white counts are are in excess of 30,000, which is kind of a hallmark uh, of these, is that uh, an experienced clinician will see someone with a fever and a really high white count and, and diarrhea, and that's uh, very, very suggestive for somebody suffering from C. difficile colitis. Well, when you think about C. difficile colitis, most, I think, the junior or inexperienced people would say, well, this is just a diarrheal disease. But as Musher pointed out in uh, clinical infectious diseases back in 2005, C. difficile colitis is associated with uh, a pretty significant mortality. Nearly 20% in the first month after diagnosis uh, die, and 27% three months after the diagnosis. And it's certainly it's not all related to the C. difficile colitis or complications thereof, but this is a uh, typically a pretty fragile patient population who experiences this diagnosis. Well, let's focus now on the treatment of a C. difficile colitis. If the condition is caused by our use of antibiotics, then it makes sense that we would stop the antibiotics. In some cases, that's not entirely possible because the patient's on antibiotics because they have a life-threatening infection in another organ system, perhaps peritonitis or pneumonia. There have been reports that uh, 15 to 23 percent of patients who have C. difficile colitis had spontaneous resolution of their symptoms within, tw- within 48 to 72 hours of stopping the offending antibiotic and without any specific antimicrobial therapy. And some of the references for that are Teasley in Lancet 1983, Bartlett uh, and colleagues in a Review of Infectious Diseases in 1984, and Orson, Olson and colleagues um, um, back in Infection Control Hospital Epidemiology in 1994. So a large number of the cases are going to improve just with the cessation of antibiotic therapy that causes C. difficile colitis and not actually giving antibiotics directed at the uh, C. diff colitis. Now, as regard to specific antibiotic therapy, vancomycin is perhaps the uh, antibiotic that uh, everybody would typically uh, think of when it comes to C. diff colitis, and in vitro, C. difficile is susceptible to vancomycin. This is good. Now, oral vancomycin was used to treat staphylococcal enterocolitis and uh, uh, clindamycin-associated diarrhea before the discovery that C. difficile was responsible uh, for this disease. Dosing of the vancomycin typically ranges from 125 to 500 milligrams four times a day, and these various doses were found to be equally effective. Vancomycin at a dose of 125 milligrams four times a day by mouth cures about 86 to 100% of the patients with C. difficile colitis. And interesting enough, vancomycin at this dose is the only medication that has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration um, uh, for this particular indication uh, uh, and infection. One thing that's nice is that when we think of uh, various antibiotics and we, we try to teach folks this, that when you, uh, because something is sensitive uh, in a petri dish, you, you're not really thinking about what's happening in the body because in the body we need to get the drug to the site of the infection. We need to be able to get the drug to work in the particular environment uh, of the infection based on the uh, uh, oxygenation uh, situation or what we call the redox potential uh, or the pH if something is in a very acidic environment. There are medications that don't work very well in acidic environments. There may be barriers that, per- that prohibit or permit the, uh, uh, from, uh, that particular antibiotic to that area, the, the most obvious ones that people think about, are like the blood-brain barrier or the placenta, but you should also be thinking about what is my particular penetration into the colon or the bowel or pneumonia. Uh, and in this case, we're trying the infection we're trying to treat is in the lumen of the bowel. This is a good thing because the antibiotic is getting to where we need to, where it's staying where we put it, and it's there in very high concentrations. And by being in very high concentrations, it keeps resistance potential down. And to date, resistance is not clinically important in the use of vancomycin to treat C. difficile colitis. 
Another very popular drug for the treatment of C. difficile colitis is our old friend metronidazole or flagell. The ability of metronidazole or flagell to uh, treat uh, C. diff colitis is very good. There's very uh, few reports or really no reports of any resistance uh, of this antibiotic uh, to C. difficile colitis. And a Cochrane database review back in uh, 2005 showed no difference between uh, flagell and vancomycin in treating C. difficile colitis. So you're faced with these two drugs, and we told you already that well, flagell is the only one approved by the Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of C. difficile colitis. Well, there are some other uh, pressures for our decision-making. One is certainly the cost. There's a remarkable difference in the cost between um, metronidazole, flagell, or vancomycin, flagell being certainly uh, less expensive. And then there's the other concerns we have regarding um, vancomycin-induced resistance of bacteria, particularly uh, within the hospital environment. And therefore, this is the general recommendation that when treating C. difficile colitis, metronidazole uh, to be used as the first-line treatment for C. diff colitis. And this is from the American College of Gastroenterology uh, guidelines that they published back in 1997. But just when you think you've got all the questions answered, people begin to ask new ones. And there's been some new articles recently by Pepin and colleagues in Clinical Infectious Disease in 2005 and Gerding and colleagues uh, in uh, Clinical Infectious Disease in 2005. And people are really starting to question, is flagell the best treatment for C. difficile colitis? Because we're starting to see perhaps a lower rate of success with metronidazole therapy. In the cases reported by these authors, about a quarter of the patients failed to respond to two weeks of metronidazole therapy, and another one quarter had recurrence of C. difficile colitis within two months. An article by Zara and colleagues published in Clinical Infectious Disease in 2007, volume 45, pages 302 to 307. It's a, a double-blind prospective comparison between flagell and metronidazole. confirms that metronidazole is inferior to oral vancomycin in moderately severe or severe cases of C. difficile colitis, which raises into question whether this is the appropriate drug to use, particularly in a critically ill patient. Now, we talked earlier about some of the pharmacokinetic properties. We said that when you're giving a treatment, an antibiotic to treat an infection, we had to get the drug to the site of the treatment. We had to get the drug to there in concentrations high enough to kill the organism or stop growth of the organism. And we said earlier that flagell basically is unabsorbed by the bowel, and that's a good thing because that's where the infection is. And therefore, uh, with oral vancomycin, you can give very high doses orally, and what that does is it can eradicate the infection. Now, when we look at flagell, the way the body handles flagell may explain some of the concerns and some of the observed failure rates. Uh, in healthy adults, after oral administration, metronidazole is completely absorbed by the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, and such to the point that when you measure metronidazole in feces, it's essentially undetected. Now, in fairness, that's in normal individuals who aren't suffering from a C. difficile colitis toxic-mediated diarrhea because when you do look at that, at those stools, you are seeing um, the concentration of metronidazole uh, in concentrations that are exceeding the required MIC to treat uh, C. Di uh, C. difficile colitis. So what's the take-home point there? Well, the take-home point is that CDC responds to metronidazole therapy, but the drug concentration of the feces rapidly uh, falls, and this is, uh, results in perhaps increasing uh, the dose or prolonging therapy is not likely to prevent relapses in patients who've responded to therapy. Now, there are some other medications that are used to treat C. difficile colitis, not incredibly practical 
um, in uh, my setting in an intensive care unit, perhaps somebody uh, in, in infectious disease may consider these. One is um, nitazoxanide, which is a uh, typically used to treat protozoan and uh, type infections. Um, rifaximin is another agent that can be used to treat C. difficile colitis, though I can't say that I've ever seen anybody uh, use either one of those agents for the, uh, this infection. Now, we've gone on saying that C. difficile colitis is a colonic infection, and the reason why people get typically ill is the toxin-mediated diarrhea. One arm of our treatment has been to treat the underlying infection, and that seems to make perfect sense. The other element is, is what can we do um, to perhaps abrogate some of the effect of the elaborated toxin? Are there, are there medications or agents or treatments that we can do that even though we're actively treating the uh, uh, residential C. difficile uh, infection, what about the toxin-mediated part of this disease? There have been agents that have been tried in an in vitro type setting uh, to try to bind this toxin. Um, uh, uh, Colstapol and uh, cholestyramine, uh, these are antibiotic exchange resins, and the idea behind these is that if we gave these, they would potentially bind the toxin and hopefully abrogate some of the toxin-mediated diarrhea part of this disease. Though they seem to work in vitro, they have not been shown to show any clinical efficacy in an in vivo or an inpatient type situation. The other problem that this kind of therapy um, uh, uh, produces is that though you're giving this binding agent to hopefully bind the toxin, is that they also will bind the antibiotic that you're using to treat the infection. So certainly, you know, you're you're giving the cholestyramine and it binds the vancomycin. Well, that doesn't do the underlying treatment or source control of the C. difficile colitis any good because you're basically taking the antibiotics out of commission. So that therapy, there, there's no traction with that. There's been some other types of novel therapy using the, um, um, human a immune globulin. Uh, people have talked about vancomycin enemas and infusion enemas. Um, but when you actually think about it, as far as uh, perhaps treatment recommendations and so forth, you, ha you have to wonder uh, when you're approached with flagellar vancomycin, particularly in the critically ill. And this is where I'm typically thinking of people who are in the, the intensive care unit for the treatment of critically ill, metronidazole or flagell, I always have had a problem saying that drug, uh, is really a, a drug that perhaps only arrests the disease. Based on the literature, only perhaps maybe 20 to 25% of the patients. Uh, and then there's a reasonably high relapse rate. And it may not be the most appropriate drug therapy, even though it may be the cheapest, uh, though it may have the least likely to result in pressure to the inducement of, of resistant organisms. This is, a, this is a serious disease, and therefore vancomycin we know is proven to be effective. Vancomycin um, stays uh, uh, in levels that are high enough that hopefully keep any kind of resistance or uh, tolerance problems with the C. difficile colitis down, and should probably be the only drug, really an ethical concept, that interests of the individual patient and, and certainly uh, more of a theoretical concern for the general good. People are always worried about resistance and so forth and, and cost, but um, it is highly effective. Uh, and we are, like we're saying, more uh, problems with relapse, particularly with flagell therapy. Now let's get to the issue of how do we actually make the diagnosis. In the old days, they actually used to take stool and they actually used a uh, cytotoxicity assay. And, and the cytotoxicity assay was close to being 100% sensitive and 100% specific, but it was reasonably uh, expensive. Now the tests typically are done by an ELISA uh, type of assay, which is much less sensitive. 
Uh, three specimens are required to achieve a sensitivity of about 75 to 85%. If I didn't say that was typically the, the earlier ELISAs, I didn't want to misrepresent thing. Now it, it's felt that the, uh, with, with the ELISA assay has improved, the sensitivity of a single fecal example is perhaps 95%, and the specificity is greater than 95%. So I do want to clarify that, that now with improved ELISA assays, they are more sensitive than they have been in years past. With uh, I'll quote that number again for a uh, sensitivity on a single fecal sample is a, approximately 95%, and the specificity is greater than 95%. Now we say we see cetaphil colitis perhaps more than we should, and one of the things that makes me very paranoid is that disease is actually uh, very contagious. Uh, it's spore-mediated. So one of the things that we typically will do is put these patients in full contact precautions. And one of the things that make me really paranoid are these waterless alcohol gels that we have. And in our unit, in our intensive care unit, we use full barrier precautions on every single patient, regardless of what their proven uh, microbiology or what their flora is. Because particularly when you're dealing with burn patients, by the time somebody has an infection, you send it to the lab and it comes back to the from the lab 24 to 48 hours. Um, dozens of patients have been in that room, perhaps gone to other patients' rooms or they've gone back, particularly family members, gone back to the waiting room, handled things like fomites, such as chairs or magazines in the waiting room and have transmitted those diseases throughout. We are uh, have a strict policy that everyone is stopped at the door and has to demonstrate hand cleansing with a waterless alcohol gel at the door for the medical receptionist. The nurses are, have full police power for anybody in the hospital, including the chancellor of the medical center, to stop them and ask them to politely rinse their hands uh, with a uh, waterless alcohol gel. Now, as much as we may be doing that and taking a bath in waterless alcohol gel every day, that is not the way to cleanse your hands with C. difficile colitis because this is a spore-mediated disease. And therefore, hand-washing. Old-fashioned soap and water hand-washing is what is required. And we have these patients on full contact precautions. After one of these patients leaves their room uh, at discharge, we basically have to go in with chlorine bleach and clean the entire room. So being very, very paranoid because a disease like this can break through a hospital very quickly. And this is where a lot of the people who are focusing on quality indicators in hospitals are putting a lot of their attention on things like C. difficile colitis. This is a disease typically that's been caused by use of antibiotics. So there's that iatrogenic element that people already have to it. Despite the evidence that we've already presented in this podcast, that larger numbers are coming in from the community. The other element of this is that if it's spreading from one room to the other room to another room, regardless whether they're on antibiotics, let's be intellectually honest with ourselves. Why are they doing it? Because we're not washing our hands. Now, I've already said earlier that this is a pretty morbid disease, and there's a reasonably significant morbidity and mortality associated with this. C. difficile colitis may progress to severe sepsis, peritonitis, and even toxic uh, colonic dilatation and bowel perforation. And in those cases, the mortality rate may exceed 50%. Uh, if a patient uh, uh, is having a life-threatening disease, these patients may go to the operating room for a total colectomy, and, and uh, total colectomy has the lowest mortality rate in the treatment of fulminant uh, C. difficile col uh, uh, colitis compared to more limited colonic resections. 
And one of the things uh, that people will tell you is that C. difficile colitis is a diagnosis that is not made well by looking at the serosa of the bowel, meaning that you could be looking at a bowel grossly and have it look normal, but it is diseased bowel. And uh, typically the recommendations that people have are a total colectomy because it is removing all of the bowel that is diseased, even though that, that may be involved looks grossly normal. It will not be. A total colectomy has the lowest morbidity and mortality compared to lesser resections for the treatment of C. difficile colitis. Uh, in a case series of 14 patients who underwent surgical management of fulminate colitis, the 30-day mortality was 10%, which is still pretty high, but it's 10%. For 10 patients treated with a total uh, colectomy um, versus um, 100%. For those who had a hemicolectomy, so again showing that a total colectomy is perhaps going to produce the the superior surgical result, and this is consistent with the teaching that you cannot really grossly look at the bowel and determine whether it is diseased or not, uh, and that's why surgeons have typically been taught. We've been taught is to do the total colectomy. The other thing I'd recommend to the non-surgeons who are listening is that when you have a patient who's critically ill and they're suffering from CDC, that getting the surgeons on board earlier is perhaps more beneficial uh, than perhaps the two o'clock panic call uh, that a patient who even treating for C. difficile colitis for several days is now uh, um, tremendously unstable and perforated. So earlier surgical consultation, I think, is, uh, benefits everyone. So in summary, some general rules um, is clearly minimizing necessary use of antibiotics, uh, that if you start seeing somebody who has water diarrhea and you're taking care of them, um, first of all, be mindful that if you are considering C. difficile colitis, you're taking care of a patient who could be potentially very contagious. Um, if you can stop antibiotics, by all means, stop or reduce antibiotics. The other thing we want to talk about is the use of proton pump inhibitors. Uh, reduce the use of proton pumps inhibitors. There was a large meta-analysis in the American Journal of Gastroenterology last year that showed an association of PPIs to development of C. difficile colitis um, this was a case that um, I recently saw in a patient in our unit uh, who I was covering on, and, and the patient had developed C. diff colitis when it was on a PPI, and you ask, well, why is the patient on a PPI? And it's like, well, because they're burned, and, and that's true. Patients who are burned uh, will develop stress gastritis, but when we look at our indications for uh, risk factors for stress ulceration, typically it's people who are mechanically ventilated greater than 48 hours, people with coagulopathy, acute hepatic failure, significant hypotension, sepsis, chronic renal failure, alcoholism, steroid administration, prolonged NG tube placement, severe head injury, burns greater than 30% total body surface area. Some people would say 20% total body surface area, but these are typically critically ill patients. This patient didn't have uh, burns greater than 30 or 20% TBSA and probably didn't need to be stress ulcer prophylaxed. They weren't NPO. The other thing is that we see in a large number of patients, so people who may fill some of these criteria while they're in the intensive care unit, then when they go to the floor, they're continued on their stress ulcer prophylaxis. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Well, when you look at some of the side effects of these medications, the likelihood that a patient is going to have clinically significant bleeding from stress ulcer disease is about 3 to 6%. When they do, that has a mortality rate of about 20%. So about three out of six are going to have any kind of clinically significant disease. You, there is no superiority data that shows a PPI is superior uh, over an H2 blocker in preventing stress ulcer disease. None at all. 
Um, and, and people can certainly challenge you on this. This was recently presented at the Society for Critical Care Medicine. And, and again, on that update there, there was no recent evidence to show that one is superior than the other. And we do have evidence showing that PPIs are associated with the increased risk of meta-analysis data, yes, but data nonetheless uh, for the development of C. difficile colitis. So again, does my patient need ulcer prophylaxis, yes or no? If they need it, when we go to the floor, do they need it? And then a large number of these patients who are eating well, not septic, what have you, are going home they're still going home on H2 blockers or PPIs to prevent stress ulcer prophylaxis, even though they've been discharged from the hospital, they're eating, and that they're not meeting any of these risk criteria. So every time you have a chance, try to thin these patients' medication lists. That is the discussion on C. difficile colitis. That's not a horribly exciting topic. It is something that we've seen recently, two cases uh, in our unit, which is typically the case because these things seem to come in clusters, and that's because of the contagious nature of them. Uh, this is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. The uh, home website is uh, icrounds.com, uh, or you can search on iTunes, IC Rounds. My personal website is www. Uh, burndoc.com or burndoc.net and some of you email me saying that some of the links aren't working I apologize for that I'll do that in my free time which is none Um, thank you for listening have a good day